I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Oh, spring is here. Summer's around the corner. Don't you just want to, like, go camping and hiking? Maybe maybe catch some fish? Right now I just want a lot of Sudafed. <laughs> but, sh- but yeah, yeah, I, I know you don't want that. I know you don't want to go camping. <laughs> but yeah, I'd like to go camping. Sounds yeah. nice. Oh, okay. Do you, do you have much experience with that sort of thing? Yeah, a lot. Really? Yes. Do you? Well, what I did as a kid has nothing to do with our topic today, and I'm trying to like lead down a path of a I, segue. I, I know, but I, I, you're asking me questions, and I'm answering them. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, we are, are going to be talking about stuff that does have to do with like camping, in a way. Yeah? Yeah. We're going to be talking about some Girl Scouts. Oh, I had no idea. <laughs> you had no clue. We're mostly going to be talking about the founder. Mm-hmm. A little bit about the programming, how it's changed, other stuff, a little bit of cookie talk, <laughs> mostly though, about our founder. And who's that? And that is uh, Juliet McGill Kinsey Gordon, who would be known as Juliet Gordon Lowe. She, a lot of times though, went by Daisy. Because there weren't enough names in the mix. Yeah. Yeah. Da- Daisy was a family nickname, and it's what she mostly went by. Okay. so many names. So she is the the founder of the Girl Scouts of the USA. Or GSUSA. Yes. If you're in a hurry. G-S-U-S-A. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, she was born on October 31st, 1860 in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, and she is named after her uh, grandmother, Juliet Augusta McGill Kinsey, mm-hmm. who lived from 1806 to 1870. Now we're actually going to pause on her grandmother. Sure. Remember that tweet? I was like, oh my gosh, everything connects to everything. I do remember that. Well, this is it. (laughs) So everybody's grandma connects to everything. Yeah. So her grandmother was born in Connecticut, and she married a man by the name of John J. Kinsey, who was one of Chicago's first permanent settlers who moved to the city before it was a city uh, when he was one year old in 1804. So the the Kinsey House. The Kinsey House. <laughs> Which is the Dusab House. But yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, wow. So they married in 1830 and they moved to Detroit and then later Fort and later Fort Winnebago in Wisconsin. Or what's now Wisconsin. So did they go up in, in a recreational vehicle? Because that would have been something. So so John was an Indian sub-agent to the Ho-Chunk Nation assigned to that area. Mm -hmm. So in July 1833, they ended up moving to Chicago. John's mother was recently widowed, so they moved back there to help her and his siblings, in addition to some changes in his work that was happening. Um, So they became really active in Chicago civic and social development. Mm -hmm. Uh, They helped found the St. James Church, the oldest Episcopal congregation in the city. Uh, This church is at Huron and Wabash. Now, it was founded in 1834, and most of the parish church was destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire. But the bell tower survived and was incorporated into it being rebuilt. Um, And I guess, like, the soot stains from the fires, like, still, like, on there. They never, like, cleaned it off. (laughs) Well, you wouldn't. (laughs) Those soot stains mean something, dang it. Um, they also helped found St. Luke's Hospital in 1864. This hospital is in the 1400 block of South Michigan Avenue. 
in mm-hmm. Indiana. The building for the hospital is now apartments because the hospital would outgrew that building and merge with others and outgrow. Right, And right. it's eventually what turned into Rush Medical Center. Oh. Like, that's where you can trace the history back to St. Luke's Hospital was kind of the what it mm-hmm, grew from. Mm-hmm. And the Chicago Historical Society, which is now the Chicago History Museum, mm-hmm. um, they also helped create in uh, 1856 with the purpose to study and interpret Chicago's history. Which there was, what, 20 years of <laughs> by that point? Yeah. Chicago was founded in 1833. <laughs> Much of the original collection uh, was destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, including Lincoln's final draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. Oh, well, that's a shame, I would say. Uh, So then they began collecting stuff again, and the collection was destroyed in a fire again. So then they built a fireproof building (laughs) on the site of the original building, which opened in 1896, and where they stayed for 36 years, which is the Excalibur nightclub that we talked about in the Eastland disaster, which people claim housed bodies from the Eastland disaster, but it never did. I'm just glad they finally got a fireproof building. I mean, burn me twice, shame on me. Well, then they built another building, which is where, like, they now are. Yeah, yeah, and in, in Lincoln it's Park. it's even more, like, fireproof. Yeah. Things connect and other things we've talked about, and it's not over. <laughs> because for Grandma Juliet here. Yeah, Daisy's grandma. Uh, members of her family told her about the Battle of Fort Dearborn. Mm-hmm. Which many of them were not actually attacked because um, they were actually like Canadian and like evacuated to Detroit and stuff before things happened. But they knew a lot about what was going on. And in 1844, she published Narrative of the Massacre at Chicago, August 15th, 1812, and of some preceding events anonymously. <laughs> As the title of the book, she published it anonymously and then later would take authorship of it. She was mostly embarrassed by the really unwieldy title. really bad title. Um, She's also known for publishing in 1856, Waban, The Early Days in the Northwest, uh, a book that recounted experiences she had at Fort Winnebago and uh, family's experiences during this time and during the Black Hawk War. Now, I've not read it, so I'm going off of what other people say. Um, (laughs) But apparently a, a lot of... Her writing was very unique because it described in detail the lives of Native Americans who were being displaced and in like a very like respectful way, mm-hmm. which was very unusual for the time. Right. Um, and she also has uh, excerpts um, from journals of Thomas Forsythe, who uh, you know blamed the U.S. and not the Native Americans for starting these wars, mm-hmm. um, which was also very. uncommon approach to it of the time. You don't see that a lot in American writing. Uh Uh-huh, especially from the 1800s. Right. Again, I have not read it, but this is what uh, seems to be a very common opinion of the work. It's the 1800s, so he's probably drowning in ether. We can't really (laughs) judge anything from that. Now, now Grandma wrote some other books, too, and uh, her husband would become the second president of Chicago, in 1834. Uh, he ran for mayor in 1837 when Chicago became a city, but he lost to William Butler Ogden. Now, Grandma would die uh, in Long Island in 1870 when a druggist accidentally gave her morphine instead of quinine, which was a drug that was used to like treat malaria and other things. Yeah, but at least she died happy. It's true. 
Grandma had six kids who lived to adulthood. Mm-hmm. Three of the sons were definitely on the Union side during the Civil War, one being killed and two being captured by Confederates. But then one of their daughters married a guy out of Georgia who would fight for the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Super split there. Yeah, yeah. Which brings us back to the person we're going to talk about. But I, like, <laughs> I could not ignore all these things that Grandma was involved with. What what a civically engaged uh, lady. Yeah. And I think it's a really interesting fact, too, though, because I think it helps kind of show who Juliet Gordon Lowe, Daisy, like, who she is and who she became and, like, how she had mm-hmm. lots of influences of different backgrounds. Right. Growing up. Like, th- this was the grandmother she's named for. Yes. Uh, published author, founder of many societies and, and charities. and yeah. yeah. And she didn't, like, get to spend, you know, much time with her at all. <laughs> uh, but I think it's very interesting. So Daisy was one of six kids born to Eleanor Nellie Light Kinsey, the uh-huh. daughter of Grandma, uh, and William Willie Washington Gordon II, a cotton broker in Georgia who shortly after Daisy would born would be the one who joined the Confederacy. Right, right. So you automatically there have very different, like, I guess kind of the extreme of like Southern businessman at the time. Mm-hmm. Cotton broker yeah. joins the Confederacy. When she was five, though, uh, she and some of her family like stayed in Chicago and then she got brain fever. Oh no, her uh, brain. Cool down that brain. Which that's a term that was used for like meningitis and scarlet fever and encephalitis so who knows what she actually had she had brain fever it says so right there (laughs) yeah 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 but she recovered uh luckily and then spent most of her life being accident prone like she almost had a couple fingers amputated in 1960s or in 1866 because she like broke them so badly yeah she also like had malaria a lot a a lot (laughs) a lot you can get malaria a lot Uh, in the 1800s, you could. Oh, read what's on the label when the druggist gives you your stuff. All mm-hmm. right. That's all I'm going to say. You know, and she she did the normal thing of the time of like attending multiple you know boarding schools and finishing schools, um, but all mostly in uh, northern states, mm-hmm. uh, in New York, uh, New Jersey, in Virginia. She was for a while, too, but... The north of the south. North of the south. <laughs> And she, she had lots of interests, you know, art, poetry. Um, she was known for writing and performing her own plays. Uh, she and some of her cousins would sew clothes for children of immigrants uh, mm-hmm. that lived in the area. Just various, very active. And she always was interested in learning more, um, which we'd see in her later life. In, like, her, uh, you know, 20s, she would learn woodworking and metalworking and, like, even <laughs> design and build an iron gate that would be on one of her homes Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. very interested in like trying different things when she was 20 uh one of her sisters died so she went home to savannah to help out right uh when she was there she met uh william mckay who she courted in secret uh now he left to go to school and they didn't see each other for a few years and during this time she traveled um a lot through europe uh, and so much for helping out at home. Well, she was home, but then she'd travel and like, I mean, she was probably home for a while and then was like, yeah, okay, mom, yeah, you're yeah. good now. We're Done all, morning for we're a while. Square. I'm, I'm going to go to France for a bit. See ya. I mean, it was like years, like yeah, at least yeah, three yeah. years. 
1885, uh, they were engaged and married the following year. And they lived basically between like London and Scotland and Savannah. Yes, the the triangle. Yes. Uh, much, A very narrow triangle. <laughs> through the first two years of their marriage, they were apart a lot. Daisy had a lot of medical issues, I guess, due to being, you know, accident prone and malaria. <laughs> My annual bout with malaria. <laughs> um, and her husband was known for going on hunting trips and gambling excursions and whatnot. And Daisy also was unable to have children, mm -hmm. which put a struggle on the relationship. I think all the gambling and the malaria is going to do more. <laughs> but that's just my perspective. Yeah. Uh, during this time, she got involved with a lot of charity work, which apparently her husband was completely against. Um, <laughs> which it sounds like she married a great dude. Yeah, he definitely fits in with his family. Uh, in 1901, uh, well, she, she knew he was probably having affairs, but she became aware of a very specific one and knowing who it was. It was like a family friend. Mm -hmm. So that's great. Uh, she left the house, but she was also worried about divorce. Right. Like, you'd automatically think nowadays, like, divorce that asshole. Yeah. But this is a time when divorce was not, it was very frowned upon. It was mm -hmm. very hard to do. Very, very difficult. And women weren't set up to, you know, survive on their own. Right. So it was something she worried about. Uh, and she asked that they wait a year before any decision was made. Um, and initially he was like, I don't want a divorce. I don't know what you're talking about. But they, <laughs> later he was like, no, we need uh, to get a divorce and I'm going to stop giving you any money until I get one. Uh-huh. Now, to get a divorce, she had to prove adultery or abuse or whatever. She could prove adultery. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah she yeah. could. She had knew the person. She knew the name. But to do that, she'd have to, like, actually name the person. The outcome of doing that, both for her, her husband, the woman, and just, like, her family, like, the social stigma of it yeah. is so intense at the time that she didn't want to. Snitches initially. die in ditches. You get abandoned. Yeah. So in 1903, she did get her husband to agree to a support agreement that allowed her to have the house in Savannah and some stocks and a certain amount of money that would allow her to buy a house in London, mm -hmm. along with another one that she could rent out to get herself an income. Aha. Uh -huh. So it was like a good agreement. Mm -hmm. And he would end up, while they're still going through the divorce process, he would have a stroke. Oh, um, well, that's what you get. God says, screw you. Well, Daisy's like... I don't feel it's right for me to continue on with this for someone who currently cannot, like, defend themselves. Mm -hmm. So we're going to put this on hold for a bit. <laughs> She's like, I don't think that's right. When he was better in 1905, it started up again. But then a few months later, he died from a seizure before the divorce was finalized. You think, though, he was better from the stroke a lot earlier? He's like, mm, let's not tell her. Maybe. I don't want to do... Can I just pretend I'm still having a stroke? Well, you know, he, he could have because he's maybe buying some time to do what he did, which was he he changed his will and left everything uh, to the woman he was having an affair with. Oh. And uh, got rid of the support agreement. Uh-huh. Which left her with nothing. Mm -hmm. Now, his sisters, though, were like, no. <laughs> and they actually uh, contested the will for Daisy. Mm -hmm. 
they were actually the ones that were like, we are going to do this for you. Mm -hmm. We hope you want us to, but we are doing this, whether (laughs) you want us to or not. Um, And she ended up receiving the money she was promised, um, the house in Savannah and stocks. But it seems like no one liked this too. (laughs) His sisters were also like, good riddance, bye. (laughs) Um, They could have contested it for themselves. Like they would have been... They could have, yeah. As, you know, heirs to the deceased. No, no, yes, to support his family, not not these ladies he he been boinking. I don't know, they're like, this is his wife? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I don't know, like, they might have, like, some of the other stuff that originally was supposed to be left to mm-hmm. the fair lady. Like, maybe they, they got that stuff. Maybe, But yeah. they made sure that she at least got she, what had been promised. She wasn't going to be destitute. Yes, um, so in 1911, she met uh, Sir Robert Baden-Powell. Ooh, I've heard of that guy. Yeah, yeah. He's so. the founder of the Boy Scouts of America, which will soon be known as uh, Scouts BSA. <laughs> yes. Well, it's not just Boy Scouts. Wasn't it also uh, Boy Scouts over in England That's true. As well? Yeah, he, he the founded Boy Scout the Scouting Movement, movement, the scouting movement in, in England, yes. Yes. But yeah, they're going to have a name change, which is very odd. <laughs> BSA is no longer going to stand for anything. Sure, okay. So the scouting uh, movement, the Boy Scouting movement, was uh, around like 40,000 members uh, in the U.S. and Europe at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, she became really close friends with him. Uh, a couple of months later, uh, she would become involved with the Girl Guides over there as well, mm-hmm. uh, which would be the girl version of, of Boy Scouting um, that was run by uh, Baden Powell's sister. She started a Girl Guides patrol in Scotland uh, with the goal of, like, you know, learning how to become self-sufficient with uh, livestock and how to care for them and uh, read maps, tie knots, cook, first aid, you know, camping. Basically all the things the Boy Scouts were doing and some other things. But with a slightly more domestic focus. Bit more domestic, but still also doing, like, outdoor things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There would be two more Girl Guides patrols that would be organized in London as well that year. Daisy was, like, really into this idea. She's like, this is really cool. <laughs> um, so in 1912, uh, she and Baden-Powell took a trip to the U.S. to spread the scouting movement there. Uh, when she got back to Savannah, uh, she called a cousin who was a teacher, like an educator at the time, and is the very famous quote that, like, all Girl Scouts will learn about at some point yeah. is uh, in her call saying, I've got something for the girls of Savannah and all America and all the world, and we're going to start it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, very famous quote. It deserves to be, man. That's There's some moxie in that mm-hmm. quote. There's some gumption in there. So in uh, March 1912, the first two... American Girl Guide patrols were founded with 18 girls. Mm-hmm. She she grew it pretty fast. Yeah. Girl Guides in the U.S. really, really took off. Um, and a lot of that can be attributed to Daisy's social circles. She mm-hmm. knew a lot of people. And she was not afraid to recruit them for leaders or members or to, uh, you know, ask um, for people to become patrons and help support it's a good thing she dragged her feet on that divorce or like all these people couldn't be seen with her in public. Right. <laughs> um, she also took to like advertising mm-hmm. uh, in different publications, like locally and stuff. Um, she also had connections such as Louise Carnegie, the wife of Andrew Carnegie, mm-hmm. you know, one of the richest people in the world. Yeah. 
you know, really liked what she was doing, and also they supported a lot of causes. Quite a few public libraries are, are around today because of Andrew Carnegie. Yep. Now, the first Girl Guides headquarters in the U.S. Uh, was the re- remodeled carriage house of the Savannah house she owned. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, Stick them out with the horses. Oh, no. <laughs> it turns out teenage girls love horses. <laughs> oh, no. Well, they, they remodeled it to where it had several meeting rooms for patrols. Mm-hmm. Um, it also had, you know, the outside space where they could play sports or do drills or whatever they needed it for. The person that was renting, uh, like, the main house from her, mm-hmm. um, his name was Edmund Drodwick Nash, actually offered to pay rent on the carriage house, house in addition to... <laughs> have it be a contribution to this organization that she was creating. Aww. Like, he was like, really nice. Like, here's some extra money. Say it's rent. <laughs> Even though I'm not using it. Now, there were other female scouting organizations that were right. popping up all across the United States during this time that were modeled after the Boy Scouts. Campfire Girls is one of the most prominent that does still exist in a way today. There were lots of other ones that just did not make it. We're talking about 100 years. There's no shame in not making it an entire century. Well, a lot of the ones that popped up would, they never really grew out of their area. Mm -hmm. They would be like a regional regional things. Now, Campfire Girls uh, had the support of James E. West. Jim West, a desperado, you might say. He was the chief (laughs) executive of the Boy Scouts of America. Oh. Uh, He was also known as a strong proponent of strict gender roles. Well, it's in the name of the organization. Like, you have to contend with this. It's unavoidable. He's something. He's going to come up a few times here. Okay. Now, there were several attempts over the years um, to uh, have, like, uh, the Girl Guides, Girl Scouts, that they would eventually be known as, uh, merge with some of these other organizations, including Campfire Girls. None of it ever worked out. No. There were several strong attempts, um, Daisy really being excited about, like... Let's do this. Like, we can, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. merge our resources and it'll be great and we can serve more people. But it usually came down to, like, someone being like, no, you stole our idea for scouting. You don't own it. (laughs) (laughs) You don't own the idea of camping. I I imagine what happened far more often is some of these smaller groups just did not have the resources to continue. And their membership were like, "Mm, there's a Girl Scout troop. I'll just sign up for that instead. Eventually, but mm-hmm. a lot of them like kept going for you know a couple decades after yeah, being yeah. like, no, we don't want to involve with you. In 1913 is when we uh, get the name change. Oh, that's pretty quick. Um, Daisy was really wanting to work on growing her movement, mm-hmm. um, especially with all these other organizations going. Right now, um, she kind of went back and hung out with Baden-Powell and like was brainstorming like what can we do have you tried invading South Africa (laughs) that was his answer for everything yeah so when she came back her uh she was really in the idea of changing the name to Girl Scouts now uh Savannah Girl Guides had apparently like already started using Girl Scouts Mm mm-hmm I guess they were really connected to the idea of like pioneer ancestors and they were like scouting new things and like wild frontier. um, So they kind of merged together at the same time with the same idea. And they were like, great, we will do this. 
Now, West, who we talked about, was... Mm-hmm. The Campfire Girls guy. And Boy Scout. And Boy Scout guy. He was really, really against anyone using Scouts except for Boy Scouts. <laughs> um, he actually, like, talked and talked about how he stopped hundreds of organizations from using the name, and it was going to be no different with this one. Mm-hmm. He would, like, fight them on it about how they owned it, and it was them, and they can't use it. Baden Powell's like, no. Like, I support this. This is fine. Like, chill. (laughs) They're Americans. Just let them be. Wes said that having, like, a female organization use the name Scouts trivialized it and would cause boys to quit the Boy Scouts Mm -hmm. because they were associated. I'm like, dude. (laughs) It's fine. Calm down. It's fine. And again, Baden-Powell was like, yeah, go ahead. Though, guides would continue to be used for British girl guides. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's what it was founded under with him. He liked it. Girl guides is actually used through most of the world. Though there are other scouting organizations, like Girl Scout organizations in some countries too. Yeah. But again, mo- most countries of the world don't have that pioneer heritage. Yeah. Or pioneer mythology at yeah. least. It's like, just calm down, dude. <laughs> Um, so that year also set up, Daisy set up the uh, national headquarters in D.C., mm-hmm. um, which would really help serve as, you know, a central information dispenser mm-hmm. to, like, help spread. And, like, this is where you get your information if you want to do this. Uh, you could get handbooks through them, badges, all the stuff you need. Nothing says national organization like being headquartered in D.C. Right? Yeah. Um, so more and more... People were recruited. The organization grew more. Uh, She designed and patented the trefoil badge. Mm -hmm. Uh, And West was like, no, that belongs to the Boy Scouts. (laughs) And you have no right to use it. It's just like, it's different, dude. Calm down. You can't own a shape. (laughs) What's inside the shape is different. Yeah, if if you owned it, then how did she design it, huh? Think about right? that. I don't um, like this Will Smith character. <laughs> Will Smith? He played Jim West in, oh. in the Wild Wild West Got, movie. Gotcha, gotcha. So also formed uh, an honorary committee of Girl Scouts. Uh, Susan. It wasn't a real committee, but like it was an honorary committee. Susan Ludlow Parrish, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's godmother, uh, <laughs> Mina Miller-Edison, wife of Edison, and uh, Bertha Woodward, whose husband was uh, House of Representative Majority Leader, mm-hmm. uh, became patrons during this time as well. Now, Daisy still funded much of the cost herself, but she was starting to get some big name people involved, well, yeah. even more and more. Her dead, almost ex-husband only had so much money. In 1915, the organization had grown to 2,400 members, um, and they had about uh, 73 patrons. So, you know, people giving money. Mm -hmm. Wrote a new constitution. There was an executive committee and a national council, which led to the first national council meeting under their new name, Girl Scouts, Inc., that June, and she was elected the first president. Imagine if she wasn't, though. Right? (laughs) The drama, the betrayal. Girl Scouts would, they really got into marketing. They promoted in papers, magazines, films. Um, Mm -hmm. They made sure it was seen. Then in 1916, their headquarters were relocated to New York City. 
Uh-huh. Which is where it still is. That's a heck of a commute, though. She's still living in Savannah. Got to go to work every day in New York. Oh, she could work wherever. <laughs> so World War One was, you know, happening during this time. She uh, rented out her house in Scotland to refugees, and she also went to England and fundraised and opened a home for relatives of wounded soldiers. Mm-hmm. And she volunteered there for quite a while until. She had to come back to the States. Now, during this time, the the U.S. government was, you know, encouraging people to learn how to conserve food. Right. And to, you know, grow their own, just like what happened during World War II. Like, do it yourself. Victory gardens and rationing and yes. whatnot. So Girl Scouts in, D- in D.C. began growing and canning food for the area. And uh, Herbert Hoover actually wrote to Daisy, like, thanking her... <laughs> and expressing a uh, hope that, you know, she would help grow the movement in offering support. Now, this led to her uh, organizing the Girl Scouts to help the Red Cross. They made surgical dressings, they made clothing, um, smokeless trench candles. Like, it was a huge push for the Scouts to work on projects that would benefit the Red Cross that could be used overseas. At the end of uh, 1917... Uh, she convinced uh, Lou Henry Hoover, uh, the wife of future President Hoover, uh, to become National Vice President of the Girl Scouts. Mm-hmm. And Edith Bowling Galt Wilson, President Woodrow Wilson's second wife, uh, to become Honorary President of the Girl Scouts. <laughs> this is when West finally stopped bugging her about how she can't use the name. <laughs> He was like, you know what? I think I'm done now. I don't think... If you got the president's wife on board, I guess... I guess I I just gotta let this go. After uh, World War I, Olive Baden-Powell, the wife of Mm -hmm. Baden-Powell, created the International Council of Girl Guides and Girl Scouts uh, to bring them together across the world and to encourage more scouting movements in other countries. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is when Daisy actually stepped down as president of Girl Scouts in the U.S. in 1920 because she wanted to work on promoting guides and scouts internationally. Uh, She still stayed active in U.S. scouting. Um, Mm -hmm. She worked on and appeared in a film called The Golden Eaglet, which was a (laughs) Girl Scout film. Look at Uh, that tiny little eaglet. You can watch the film online. The Golden Eaglet was also the name for, like, the highest award a Girl Scout could earn. Kind of like Eagle Scout for Boy Scouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, what Gold Award is now, that's what it was at the time. Through, like, the 30s. Um, she also did fundraising, and she worked on planning um, camping facilities. Mm-hmm. All this while promoting Scouts elsewhere. She can't just... Stick to the United States. There's a whole world of girls out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in 1923, uh, she developed breast cancer and kept it a secret. Um, she had several operations to remove malignant lumps. After one, she actually caught the flu and was bedridden for months. Oh. Uh, in 1925, she was told she had six months to live. She continued to work for the Girl Scouts, kept things a secret. She would sneak out during her recovery of surgeries and make speeches. Like, <laughs> nothing was stopping her. She traveled uh, also to Liverpool to try an experimental treatment from Dr. William Blair Bell, who was working on a cancer treatment that involved getting an IV of colloidal lead. 
I'm gonna guess that was a bad choice. She did have to uh, recover from lead poisoning, yeah. Alright, cool, cool. Being told and realizing she didn't have much longer, she did go back to Savannah. Mm-hmm. Um, and she died January 17th, 1927 at 66. Uh, she was buried in the Laurel Grove Cemetery there in Savannah. And uh, 250 Girl Scouts attended. Uh, she was buried in her uniform with a note in the pocket that said, You are not only the first Girl Scout, but the best Girl Scout of them all. Oh, I've been there. Very beautiful cemetery. Yeah. Did you see the note? We did not look inside her coffin, no. Okay. <laughs> I'm just... I saw her, her tombstone. <laughs> And lots of fire ants. I was just wondering what y'all got up to on that trip. Not not that. Okay. <laughs> what we did get up to, in addition to visiting her cemetery, was visiting the Juliet Gordon Lowe Historic District, uh-huh. which has three buildings. The Juliet Gordon Lowe Birthplace, so the Wayne Gordon House. Mm-hmm. Uh, the First Girl Scout Headquarters, so the Carriage House. And the Andrew Lowe house, the house that she got. Mm-hmm. And it's a, now a huge destination for uh, Girl Scouts. A, I, a pilgrimage. A pilgrimage. I went when I was 17. 17, yeah. 17. Because <laughs> I was actually a delegate to the National Convention that was in Atlanta. And then we flew to Savannah, saw everything Girl Scout related. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things about ghosts. <laughs> Is that our upcoming Halloween episode? When I talk about Savannah ghost things, maybe. I got pretty spooked into thinking our hotel was haunted. I also ate some amazing chicken down there, but... Well, yeah. <laughs> That's where they invented chickens. Yeah. yeah. I... It's like pecan-crusted chicken that was in a restaurant that also was like known for being haunted by pirates. <laughs> Everything's known to be haunted down there. Anyways, you know how I said, like... It started with 18 girls. Mm -hmm. By 1920, there were 70,000 members. Wow, they're breeding like rabbits. Uh, By 1930, 200,000. In 2013, there was 3.2 million Girl Scouts. Mm -hmm. Uh, 2.3 million, which were girls. Uh, The rest were adults. Oh, okay. (laughs) Or like (laughs) volunteers, leaders, etc. Or like people like me who are like, lifelong scout. Yes, I have a membership until I die. That is a thing you can do. <laughs> 50 million Americans, it's said, have gone through the program. Mm-hmm. Daisy's goal in creating this program was to get girls out of the house. So they'd stop bugging me. The time period was like, girls stayed home. You were domestic helpers. You helped your mother until you were married. And then you helped your husband. Yes. Until or- he cheated on you with your best friend. Or, you know, if your income was lower, like, you were forced to go out and work. Right. But it was still, like, you you have to do these things. This is what you're supposed to do. And this was supposed to be a way to get them out, get into nature, which they might not experience, or and uh, help teach them self-reliance and empower them to learn things maybe they wouldn't get to learn elsewhere. Or mm-hmm. it was, like, often seen as, like, girls aren't supposed to learn that. Because if you are self-reliant, you can say no to people. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> I think some interesting uh, things to, like, go with that and, like, trying to teach things that you couldn't learn elsewhere was, like, in 1916, there was an aviation badge that they could earn. That was before, like, you could vote as a woman. But, like, we're going to teach you about how to fly. (laughs) 
which uh, aviation interest is something that hung around for a while. There was a, a Wings Scout program mm-hmm. uh, that was for the older girls. Who were really into dad rock, just loved wings. No, who were interested in flying and maybe, like, serving the country and, like, joining, like, the military eventually. Mm -hmm. This actually ran from 1941 until 1970. uh, And one of the highlights of the program was uh, a courtesy flight that United Airlines gave the Girl Scouts. For many, if you were a Girl Scout that was in the program for three years, you might be given an opportunity to take over controls on a small aircraft. (laughs) Um, Now, this program was actually discontinued because United had financial issues in the 70s. They say financial issues, but what they mean is some kids stole a plane and flew to Nicaragua (laughs) in order to fight the Sandinistas. Yeah. There was also... uh, the, the Mariner Scouts program that started in 1934. Uh, it's similar to the Boy Scouts Sea Scouting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's for older girls interested in water-based activities and boating, sailing. Apparently, it's still active, which I had no idea. Yeah. I guess it's just very limited in where it's around. Mm-hmm. You know, there's but, you somebody know, at national headquarters, like it's their pet thing. It is. They, like, they make sure it has some budget. I think it's a shame, though, that I had no idea, because I'm like, I grew up in Michigan, surrounded by water. Like, shouldn't this have been a thing? Like, <laughs> I was in ski scouting because of that. Yeah. Which is co-ed, and a part of the Boy Scouts conversation there later that we'll get to. Take that, James West. <laughs> One thing that you you can't go over is the fact that Girl Scout units were originally uh, segregated mm-hmm. by race according to state and local laws. It was, uh, fortunately, the way it was at the time. But there were still uh, troops happening for mm-hmm. non-white people. <laughs> uh, the first African-American troop was founded in 1917 uh, in the New York area. Uh, the first African-American troop in the South wouldn't come until 1932, though. The first Native American troop in 1921 and the first Mexican-American troop in 1922. Do we know what Daisy thought of this? Like, did she try to start or did someone petition her for a, a troop for for black girls in or around Savannah? So the next person we're going to talk about, Josephine Groves Holloway, mm-hmm. um, was the first person to successfully register the first African-American Girl Scout troop in Nashville uh-huh. in 1942. Now, here's the thing. In 1924, she actually attended a training with Julia Gordon Lowe. Uh-huh. Because Daisy really liked to try, especially as they were starting out, try to talk to every troop that was going on. Mm-hmm. Talk to the leader. She was the one, like, running a lot of the trainings. Um, and she really wanted it to get spread to everyone. Now, Josephine Groves Holloway was a black woman. Mm-hmm. So, like, she was, like, from what I understand, like, she was totally into having troops and organizations for all girls. Right. But unfortunately, they had the issues of local laws Mm -hmm. to go around. Josephine requested to start an official troop very shortly after this. She actually um, started an unofficial troop because she could not get the official yes from the Nashville Council. Uh Uh-huh. Because of local laws and prejudices and stuff. So she had an unofficial troop. She met with her girl. She used the handbook and everything. Now, she actually um, was really persistent doing these things. And I think she actually started several other, um, helps start some other, like, unofficial troops. 
Mm -hmm. due to her and then other pressure that was coming from the national office because they wanted to combat discrimination, the local council was basically forced to (laughs) grant her request in 1942. And that's when they became the first uh, official Nashville uh, troop of African-American Girl Scouts. Um, Within 18 months, there were 13 more that joined. (laughs) So there's clearly demand. There was demand. Yeah. Segregation was still, you know, an issue, though. So even though there were troops, so there was a a harder time dealing with the different parts of the United States and what was going on locally. Mm -hmm. But even though the troops were happening, there were still issues of the activities they could do. Because, like, most state parks were closed to African Americans. Uh Uh-huh. So, like, camping was an issue. I imagine. I imagine it would Um, be. It was actually in uh, 1951, there was a land was purchased so they could create a camp that would cater to uh, African-American girls in Tennessee because they couldn't go anywhere else. So the fact, we will make this camp for you. Right. Um, And it was actually named after uh, Josephine. In ni- when it opened in 1955. Camp Holloway. Yep. In 1951, there was also a stronger push for uh, integration of councils and troops, but the integrated camps couldn't really happen until 1962. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Josephine is actually credited with fully desegregating the Cumberland Valley Council in 1962. Um, Congratulations. They actually started to try to like desegregate the camps in the 50s. Mm-hmm. But again, geographical location, what part of the country we're talking about, a lot harder. Yeah, different challenges for different jurisdictions. Yes, you know, Kentucky's going to be way different than New York. Mm-hmm. Though one of the first uh, camps that they actually uh, desegregated was in Kentucky, <laughs> finally. <laughs> but that didn't happen until like 1956. Right. Um, but that was also the year that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King... Junior stated that the Girl Scouts was a force for desegregation Mm -hmm. and that they were already pushing for things and that they could move things along faster within their organization that would push things along. Right. It's very interesting to see like how fast things do move because in 1969, Dr. Dorothy B. Freebury served as the first black vice president of GSUSA. Mm-hmm. And in 1975, Dr. Gloria Scott became the first black president of the organization. Mm-hmm. So, like, still, like, a longer time period than what you'd like. <laughs> but, but it's still... Yeah, ha- having a black woman in charge of the entire organization only 20 years after the first integrated campout. Yeah. That's that's it's something. Huge. That's very it's huge. not nothing. And those are, you know, also like the the president positions are ones that you hold for multiple years. Right. So no no organization is perfect. And so you definitely were gonna have people <laughs> though that were yeah. racist and yeah. jerks and depending on where you were. Or we're but, talking about a sample of hundreds of thousands of people. Yes. But there's always been, I feel like, a push to create opportunity. Like during World War II, there were Girl Scout troops organized in Japanese American internment camps. Mm-hmm. Um, currently, there's a huge program for Girl Scouts in prison. And their programs actually are having troops for girls whose pa- mothers are incarcerated mm. and having the troop meet at the prison so the girls can interact with their parents. Oh, that's good and sad at the same Super time. Super sad. Um, but that's been a huge program that's been going on for 
I think, like, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also very unique. Big pushes um, for <laughs> things and change. Generally ahead of the national curve. Yes. Um, within the past, like, seven years, um, I'm sure some of these things have been heard, but there's been uh, several events that have been very public where uh, Girl Scouts have taken an active stance in supporting transgender scouts. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2011, there was a troop that were jerks and rejected <laughs> a seven-year-old transgender girl. Mm-hmm. And the council's like, no, if a child identifies as a girl, they are welcome. Yeah. They are a Girl Scout. You can't say no. Right. It is not for who you want it to be for. Yeah. It is not your place as an individual troop in in Colorado to determine either our national policy or what a girl is. Uh (laughs) Those are both way above you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Just uh, back in 2015, um, the Girl Scout Council of Western Washington got a donation of $100,000. But then they found out that the donor stated that the money could not be used to support services for transgender scouts. And they said, take it back. We do not want it. Mm-hmm. Some people from the council actually started an online um, fundraising campaign uh, to help them replace that money, uh, and they ended up raising $250,000, mm-hmm. um, because people are like, yeah! Yeah, yeah, there <laughs> we, you go. That's not even how donating to charity works. You don't get to say that. You don't get to say you can use it for this and not es- this. Especially if what you say is bigoted. Like, you yeah. definitely don't. Well, and there's always... um. A very heated you know, topic in recent years with the Boy Scouts is there when it comes to gay scouts and leaders, mm-hmm. which they've been make, taking great steps in recently. Yeah, I mean, they've been taking steps in the right direction, but very slowly. Very slowly. And very small steps. And I don't want this to be like a Girl Scouts is totally better. Like but it is, and we can move on from that. But like <laughs> all the way back in the early 90s, Girl Scouts made a statement that does not matter what your sexual orientation is mm-hmm. no matter what like no matter what it is you know leaders should not be displaying anything like mm-hmm. like let's let's keep that stuff for home but like it's a personal matter we do not care what you are if a girl is gay that's fine that's a matter for her and her family and her like self mm-hmm. you can be whatever does not matter <laughs> and the focus really being on like we want this to be available it's that legacy of james west i think probably the one like still uh, topic is um (laughs) god yeah god is still a topic that's hard which was actually a big thing when i went to the national convention because we were voting on the thing about whether or not if um in the pledge like serve god and my country Mm -hmm. it was talking about like can the word god be changed which it was voted yes you can put in whatever word you want there you know, you could put in Allah, you could put in Jesus, you, by faith, whatever. Yeah. But the whole reason that Girl Scouts cannot omit God from it is actually the WAGS Association, the Worldwide Association of Girl Guides and Girl Scouts. Um, they need to tighten that up. <laughs> the, the, like, rules, basically, for belonging to it states that the organization has to be kind of based in Baden-Powell's, like, I don't know what the right word is, like, his outline a requirement is to like match up with what he said Scouts would be or something. And there's a thing in there that there has to be, it's not that faith has like, there has to be something that states like faith, certain element of faith has to be present. So like they have to leave God in to be able to be a part of this Nash, like this worldwide thing. But Girl Scouts are not 
a religious thing. There is no requirement to have prayer or anything else. Like, you can put whatever words you want there. We just can't completely remove it <laughs> because of this this one statement in mm-hmm. this thing that we that are a, based off of. That a dude made in 1903 or yeah. whatever. Yeah. That's the only thing that's still kind of, uh, and still, I think, a, a big issue that hasn't really had a lot of leeway. But Girl Scouts, unlike Boy Scouts, aren't based on sponsorships. So, like, Boy Scouts mm-hmm. tend to be a lot more religious because churches sponsor them. Right. Girl Scouts don't have to have a sponsoring organization to the, have a troop. The troop I spent the, my, the most amount of time with was based and sponsored by a uh, Catholic church. Mm-hmm. Every and Boy Scout troop my I family was- I know that a- so many Scouts are Mormon. The Mormon yeah. church is all up yeah. in there. Because Boy Scout troops have to have a sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Girl Scouts, you can just have a troop in someone's home. Mm-hmm. You don't need it. Doesn't mean that they don't. There are lots of very religious <laughs> yeah. scout troops, but there is kind of a break there. Anyways, this is very rambly. I'm sorry. That's, um, that's my job. I, I get to worry about that. Yeah. Uh, so just a few things. I, I think this is more so for people who might maybe had been involved. Uh, there's been a lot of structure changes. Just in the last just, 10, 15 years? Yes. One of the biggest is how councils are organized. So it's kind of always been like you have your troop you have your troop that's under a council, which is under the national council. And within some of those, there's like service units and neighborhoods and stuff that like wrap you into geographical areas. But, but a council is generally a certain area or population, like say two or three counties in size. Yeah. Or like, you know, originally it would be like the Chicago council mm-hmm. or like the greater Chicago area type thing. Where I grew up, we had like... Genesee County, which is where Flint is, and then the couple more rural mm-hmm. counties around it. Now, councils are very large regional areas. <laughs> um, in uh, 2006, the councils went from 312 councils in the United States to 109. Very consolidated. Um, and this was based off of some study they had them do about like reorganizing that basically created this, like, this is the number that is ideal for the amount of girls you should serve within a council. And so they're like, oh, a lot of these councils don't serve that many people, so we need to, like... (laughs) Well, that now means, like, the entire state of, like, Colorado is one council. (laughs) We now live in the greater Chicago and northwest Indiana council. Mm -hmm. So everywhere that gets, like, WGN over over their antenna. Yeah. Basically. But that's, like... A huge area, because that means, like, up to the Wisconsin border, basically, all the way into Indiana. Mm -hmm. And so now we have, like, regional gathering areas within a council, but those are still Mm -hmm. less, and it Mm -hmm. means people have to, like, go a lot farther. Right. To get your training materials, to get to the office. Yes. And with, uh, you know, there's also been changes to the, the age groups. When Girl Scouts first started, there was, like... One level for 10 to 17-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And then they added brownies for the younger ones. Mm-hmm. And then it's it's just changed and changed and morphed. This is what, as a Boy Scout, I never understood. We just had two. <laughs> you had your Cub Scouts and your Boy Scouts. Exactly. All but then these... you had your Venturing and your... I didn't do Venture Crew. I did Venture Crew. I know. <laughs> I loved Venture Crew. Venture Crew is great. I mean, it's kind of always been the same, but, like, what it's been is usually, like, there's a name, and it's, like, two to three years. What are these names, and what are these years? Explain to me, please. Okay, well, it's changed a lot over the time, but I guess, like, what it was when I was a scout was you had daisies, 
which were like five to six year olds, so like kindergarten. Mm-hmm. You had brownies, which was six to eight years old. Juniors, eight to 12. Uh-huh. Cadets, 12 to 13. And then seniors were 14 to when you aged out. Uh-huh. Though cadets and seniors, this is the weird thing, they earned the same badges back then. Uh-huh. From 12 to 18, you worked on the same stuff. There was some stuff that was specific, but the overall, like, badges you could earn were the same. Mm-hmm. They've added a level. They added a level? So now you still got your daisies, you got your brownies, you got your juniors, you got your cadets. This is where it gets weird. You got seniors, and then they have ambassadors. Ambassadors is, like, 11th, 11th and 12th grade. So they split, like, cadets, seniors, and ambassadors, like, more. Uh-huh. Which is strange to me, because I don't really feel like that was necessary, based on <laughs> when I was in the program. Like, you don't need another split there. <laughs> like, some of the other ones are like, you know, Daisy's, like, a kindergartner is very different than a second grader. Mm-hmm. Than a first grader. Like, yeah. it's a different educational level. So it makes sense that, like, some of the younger ages are smaller, like, time mm-hmm. periods you spend. But I feel like once you hit, like, 13, like, 12, 13, yeah, you're at different points in life, but your your educational understanding is pretty much the same as, like, a 15-year-old. Is You and, can handle a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, and a 15-year-old, a 17-year-old isn't going to feel weird about hanging out with you. No. There's, like, a mentorship thing that's there yeah. that I don't think that same age difference between, you know, a 5- and 11-year-old is going to have. Yeah. Yeah. And, now, and, like, cadets and seniors could be separate troops, but, like, in my case, we were – I was in a combined cadet, cadet and mm-hmm. senior troop. So we covered all those ages. But yeah, so I just think it's interesting that they're like, and ambassadors, yes. Just, um, why? Why? <laughs> to, to where? Ambassador um, to whom? There was also a short time in 2000, from 2003 to 2007, they tried to create this program called Studio 2B, which oh. was stupid. Uh-huh. It was for 11 to 17 year olds, and it was like, there was a dwindling amount of older girls in the program. So they yeah. were trying to revive that. And so they were like, okay, we got this cool program that sounds really neat. And it was supposed to be like, you didn't have to be in a troop to do it. You could do things on your own. Uh, meetings were optional. The Netflix of Girl Scouts. The whole thing was just dumb to me, though, because you could do Girl Scouts on your own. Most of my Girl Scouting time, I was what you called a scout through council, or what they now call a Juliet, where you were just registered yourself. Why is that called a Juliet? I, th- I don't know. Is they it because changed. you're abandoning your family? I, I think they just wanted to give it a nicer name, but I it's weird. But you can do most all the stuff on your own. I did. But yeah, so they created this program. No one liked it. It failed miserably. <laughs> it got cut in 2007. But yeah, about, I guess, like 2% of uh, scouts are considered solo scouts. Juliet's. Juliet's. Better than being Julienne. I, I guess. had to do that for a long time because I was literally the only person in my town above the age of eight that was in Girl Scouts, and this was when I was seventeen. That's that's rural living for you. Yeah, they loved when I showed up at events to be like, "Look, girls, you can keep doing it." <laughs> some some other changes that have recently happened, but I feel like are very important. I guess loss of history. Mm-hmm. In this case, yeah, is um, from 2009 to 2014, uh, 200 of the Girl Scout camps in 30 states have been put up for sale. Hmm, which is insane. That's a lot. Now, rising cost of maintenance uh, has often been blamed, though. I found a lot of things that really question how much money gets allocated to maintaining these camps, and it really doesn't seem like it's enough. 
Uh-huh. Like, I'd be like, mm, that, I think you can do more than that. Well, if it Especially, wasn't enough, that just proves they don't have the money. Well, in comparison to how much money is given to, say, council buildings and offices for maintenance. Um, there's a big difference there. Yeah, yeah, okay, big I difference. can see that. Um, and they also claim there is less of an interest in camping. You know, kids these days, like, I, I don't think we can deny that there's been a drop in in interest or in, like, how cool it is to be a 15-year-old in a program like this compared to 20 years ago. Yes, but even, like, when I was a scout, it was really hard to find adults that were willing to go camping. I wanted to go camping. Yes, that is true. Other girls I knew wanted to go camping. It was finding the people who would go camping with you. That is true. And would take you camping. (laughs) Um, which is a lot of the reasons why I ended up in a venture crew where the whole focus was camping. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're doing. Um, now, we've mentioned it a few times. What What is a venture crew? I feel like uh, we should get into that. Venture crew is a part of the Boy Scouts. Mm-hmm. It is for uh, 14 to 21-year-olds. And this is a... And a is co-ed. Co-ed. Uh, focused on outdoor activities specifically camping water rock climbing rock kayaking, climbing, kayaking the adventuresome hiking. stuff um yes high adventure mm-hmm. is basically what the focus was it was an amazing program it's absolutely <laughs> amazing like my brother was involved with it and as soon as i got old enough i was like i'm going to be in this and i did it until i went away to college i loved it um because that's what the focus was that's what we did mm-hmm Um, and I know there's plenty of Girl Scouts that would, like, do outdoor stuff, but there was definitely a problem in the area that I was in where that was not the focus. Mm -hmm. It would be the focus on everything else, because people didn't want to go camping. Crafting and reading and hobbies. Yes. Which I loved. Mm -hmm. Um, but there wasn't the focus on those activities. Which is why I'm like, yeah, okay, I get, like, maybe girls aren't focused in it, but I'm like, are they also giving me the opportunity to even go? Right. Are they giving me the opportunity to see if they like it before <laughs> they decide, before they're being put into the corner of they're not interested? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So getting back to these camp things, <laughs> what seems to actually be a big problem here and why camps are uh, disappearing is after the restructuring... Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like there was a lot of pension plan money needs. Uh-huh. Uh, and especially um, there's a lawsuit by a local council against the head organization when the councils merged and the 2,000 employees that were offered early retirement put them in financial distress. Uh-huh. Um, which is like, they're saying, like, this is why you're closing. Quack. Yeah, the, the the reorganization caused them to be short on cash, mm-hmm. and oh, look look at all this real estate we can liquidate. Yes, um, there's also been a change in programming where the original focus of like camping and all this stuff has there were a lot a lot more badges <laughs> that you could earn for that stuff. Now across these six age groups, there's 22 badges that have to do with the outdoors. So camping, water related, animals, plants, bugs. Hiking, first aid, stargazing, like anything outside. Yeah. But only 22 badges across six age groups. That seems short. That's very short. Mm-hmm. That's not a lot. And there was at least twice as many 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. That doesn't help. You're not <laughs> encouraging people to go. 
Now, there are still a few hundred camps that they operate, um, but a lot are now too far away from Mm -hmm. people to go. Um, Within the council that, like, we now live in, which is a very huge area, there are obviously no regular camps within Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which is not surprising. But what's surprising to me is I actually looked up, they're gearing up for summer day camp. Day camp's a huge program, actually, for Girl Scouts. It's a lot of things that really start to introduce people to outdoor activities. Mm-hmm. There's none within Chicago, either. Huh. Like, within the city, there's none. And a lot of times the day camps, like, don't use their own property. They rent facilities. Mm-hmm. Some towns might, like, you might use, like, a park that's connected to a VFW or something, or, like, whatever. But there's nothing within the city, mm-hmm. which blows my mind. Because <laughs> I was like, we have, like... There's tons of camps that operate through the park districts and whatnot. How is there not some type of partnership to do this? Mm-hmm. And then the two camps I grew up with are both closed. Aww. One closed in 2009, uh, and it was put up for auction in 2014. And that camp had been around since the 1930s with uh, like 465 acres. That's a lot of acres. Yes. And then the other camp, which was in um, up by Traverse City, which was like 250 acres, it operated for 50 years. That one closed. But luckily, like, public uh, fundraising effort allowed them to raise enough money to turn it into a permanently protected recreation area. Oh, that's good. Which is very nice. That is good. (laughs) But the thing that's interesting is the same thing's happening with Boy Scout camps. Boy Scout camps are closing left and right as well. Yeah, yeah. It's very sad. (laughs) And I know, like, maintenance, and I know there's money costs, actually, but I feel like there's not as much of an effort to keep the things mm-hmm. like oh well you can go to the other one people might not be able to drive five hours to a camp yeah yeah and the last thing we have to talk about yeah has to do with the prompt <laughs> cookies i love cookies cookies we're we're just past girl scout cookie season we are at least in this area i feel like it's an all-year thing depending on where you are like it's always cookie time somewhere <laughs> I mean, definitely in the summer, it definitely is not cookie time. Um, but cookies definitely are more accessible now because, like, you could get them sometimes at, like, council centers and stuff now. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, first known cookie sales uh, were started by an individual troop who baked cookies and sold them themselves in 1917. <laughs> Trailblazers. Uh, in 1922, the Girl Scout magazine uh, that was mailed out. I suggested cookie sales as a way to earn money and uh, printed a sample cookie recipe um, that was from a regional director of the Girl Scouts of Chicago. (laughs) Um, The recipe is a basic sugar cookie recipe that can be found online. If you type like Girl Scout sugar cookie recipe, you'll get it. And the instructions were to to bake them. You'd get six to seven dozens from a recipe and it would cost you maybe like 26 to 36 cents to make. Mm -hmm. And then you could sell each dozen for 25 to 30 cents. Right, so that that first dozen recoups your costs. Yep, and then the rest are pure profit. Yes. Uh-huh. Now, in 1933, uh, the Philadelphia Council kind of organized their scouts to bake and sell cookies, and the following year they would become the first to uh, sell commercially baked cookies. They got a place <laughs> to produce the cookies for them. In 1936, the national organization began to license commercial bakers for cookies. They lost this whole spirit of the thing. <laughs> this used to mean something. Yeah. Uh, during uh, World War II, they actually sold calendars because sugar and such was <laughs> hard to come by. 
And in 1951, there were uh, three cookies that were commercially baked. He had like a sandwich cookie, the shortbread, and the chocolate mints. The thin <laughs> mints. Uh, come 1956, we had like uh, two different types of filled cookies along with those. And then like the different bakers could make like other flavors if they wanted. 1966, we got our peanut butter sandwich cookies. 78, there were only four bakers. And this was when they unified like packaging. That all the packaging had to be the same <laughs> from all the bakers. Uh, and 1990s is when we got two bakers. So that's the thing a lot of people don't know and why a lot of people like get angry about cookie names <laughs> is because depending on what bakery your cookies come from, there are different names. For the exact same recipe. With the exact same packaging. Right. Um, so this is really important for people to know. Okay. <laughs> is it? It's what we're going to end with. Okay. okay. It must be important. It's then. important. Shortbreads. Uh-huh. Are what they're called by one company. Trefoils are what they are called by another company. And th those are the ones that nobody buys. No one buys them, except, like, Grandma. Caramel Delights mm -hmm. are Samoas. Uh-huh. And I love those. Those are so good. Those are the best. Thin Mints are always Thin Mints. <laughs> Naturally. Uh, peanut Butter Patties are also known as Tagalongs. That's my number three. And Peanut Butter Sandwiches are also known as Dosey Dose. That's my number four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then there's like other ones that like sometimes get made or yeah, like, there's or just have a descriptive they, name. They've had lemon ones for the last year uh, or two. They or had three. like some shortbread that had chocolate. Yeah, they had like a caramel chip thing. Sometimes yeah. they come out with various ones that are like sugar free, mm -hmm. or they have like a gluten free one now. But those um, are like the classics those, that those, they're going to have every year. Those five you will always find. Yeah. <laughs> Cookies started 1917, I guess, officially. Or in the 1990s. Or in the 1990s. <laughs> Would it, well, no. I would say cookies as we know them now started in 1936 because that's when it was commercially baked nationally. Well, I'd say 1951 because that's where Thin Mints came from. <laughs> Fine. Well, at least we could debate this forever. And, and with that... That's some history of the Girl Scouts. Some recent history, some long ago history, some connected to everything else history. It's just an episode of everything. And we'll take a quick break and be right back with some letters. Hey, everybody, I'm back. Uh, doing the letters and the housekeeping stuff solo because uh, Elena is sick and at work at the same time. So, but that means that our planned discussion on the news in scouting that came out after she had picked this topic, after she was doing the research, that Boy Scouts of America are planning to change the name of their, their premier program, Boy Scouting, because they're also opening it up to girls. Uh, that's something that we uh, obliquely mentioned in, in the main uh, content. But here's how that discussion would have shaken out <laughs> if we were both having it together. First, like we mentioned, venturing, sea scouting, and exploring are programs they already put on that are uh, co-ed for older uh, youth and teens. 
So this isn't as new as a lot of the hot takes are making it seem. Uh, But the idea of competition for uh, these uh, uh, scouting interested young girls is just a matter of how their interests line up to the two organizations now, right? Like both their national guidance and, and focus, but also what's available in the local area. Because while we've been talking about uh, the Girl Scouts as a national organization, right? I mean, at its founding, it was a, a couple clubs in Savannah. And and like any organization uh, of any scale, what matters to people is the, the bits of it they come in contact with day to day, right? In, in their neighborhood, in, in their school, where your friends are at. So that's basically the shape that discussion would have taken. So now, to the letters. Jeff writes in with two wonderful contributions. The first is a favorite assassin, Lord Vetinari from Discworld. The second is a picture of Phineas in a bandana. Oh, thanks, Jeff. Flavifab writes in, uh, really appreciating our, our past episode. Thank you. Because she is such a big fan of assassins and Sondheim in general. Hey, hey. And as for the current prompt, which was favorite Girl Scout cookie, hers is the tagalong or peanut butter patty, depending on where you're living. Thanks very much, Flavifab. James writes in, and his favorite Girl Scout cookies are the more recent s'mores cookies, but Thin Mints with ginger ale is a very tasty treat. And his favorite assassin is Gavirlo Princip, uh, the assassin of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the, the match to the powder keg that, that brought World War I. Thanks, James. Gene wrote in to share a news story about the 50th anniversary of this uh, 60s musician who wanted to know what it would sound like if you dropped a piano out of a helicopter. Yes, he was high at the time. Uh, it's a it's a fun little story, and we're going to put it in the show notes. But Gene also sent a picture of these sweet, sleepy dogs, Chica and Twix. And oh, they're so sweet. Thanks, Gene. Aaron writes in with a handful of props. Uh, Favorite Girl Scout cookie is the Samoa slash Caramel Delight. Uh, Favorite Disney live action film is Dragon Slayer, a a rather forgotten classic. Another vote for uh, Mr. Princip, the assassin of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And of course, no mention of, of this assassination is complete without... Reminding people of the bizarre circumstances, just a, a string of bad luck that eventually broke and he was able to, to uh, complete his goal. It's a comedy of errors. But after providing us a couple of show suggestions, Aaron also gives a couple of podcast suggestions to uh, the public at large. Uh, The Magnus Archives, a uh, serial fiction podcast that's all creepy and horror-themed. And another serial fiction show, Tannis, uh, which is a bit more on the weird side than horror, but has a lot of interesting stuff going on. But also Iconic, the 13th Age podcast, is going to have him on. And that'll be up the day before this, so you can head right over to that feed, and uh, it will be the most recent episode of theirs. But what's this? Corgi pictures! That's right, little Maeve is going in for some surgery, so let's all give some warm thoughts to this sausage of a friend. Aw, Maeve's a sweetie. Thanks, Aaron. 
Rebecca wrote us another letter, and her favorite Australian is also author Garth Nix. And she'd like to give a long-distance high-five to the listener who said the same last episode. Favorite live-action Disney movie, Pirates of the Caribbean. Nice. And as for favorite assassin, Ziva David from NCIS. (laughs) Thanks very much, Rebecca. And thank you to everybody who uh, listens and engages with the show. Uh, If you'd like to get your letter read, you can send that to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Send us your show suggestions, your comments, your questions, your stories, anything you'd like to share, including your prompt responses. And because I'm alone, I don't have anybody poking at me to come up with one. Uh, I, I do know what I'm doing for the next episode, but I also know that there's no good prompt that we haven't already done before. <laughs> but even so, we love to read your mail sent to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And you can also get in touch with us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, at historyhoneys for all three of those. And while you're out there, the best thing you can do to help us is tell a friend about the show. Send a link to your favorite episode. Just say what you like about us in general and and why you listen. Uh, You can also share that information with a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on anywhere else that leaves a little blank for you to give some feedback. And we love reading those reviews as well. I'd like to thank everybody who listened to our last episode, that uh, bonus where we talked about our trip to the Chicago Comic and Entertainment Expo 2018. Uh, we had a lot of fun at the show, and we have a whole lot of fun uh, sharing those experiences with you, including the those of you that we managed to meet. And we hope you had a great time at the show. But I suppose that's that. So I'm Grant, and you remember Elena, and history's better with your honey. <laughs> <laughs>